This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Join SFA for our 2021 Virtual Spring Symposium, scheduled March 13th through 14th, where we'll focus on environments and transformation through the medium of film. Filmmakers ask questions that connect Birmingham's Greek community and Choctaw Native peoples. Expect an archival surrealist dive into the lives of the women who powered the Underground Railroad, Learn about Milwaukee as a terminus for the Great Migration. These questions begin in the South and span the world. John Cessary Goff, a multidisciplinary artist whose work explores the intersection of race, power, gender, identity, and the environment, curates this gathering, which will feature filmmakers Colleen Thurston, Jessica Creesman, Devon Vonniequest Smith, among others. To learn more and purchase tickets, visit us at southernfoodways.org. I'm Melissa Hall. And I'm John T. Edge. We're your hosts for Gravy. 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 A production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, Gravy tells new and complicated stories about the changing American South. Black-eyed peas are a cultural totem. Claimed by many, cow peas tell the story of who we were, who we are, and most important, what we aspire to be. John T. and Adrian Miller, dig in. Adrian, when I say the magic words, black-eyed peas, what story comes to mind? So I think of uh, an ingredient that's native to West Africa that's part of the diaspora because it's something that was brought to the Americas by enslaved Africans. And it shows up in very different ways uh, throughout the Americas. Sometimes it's a direct transplant. You know, you see something that's in West Africa that replicates itself on this side of the Atlantic, something like akara, which is a black eyed pea fritter. And then you see other dishes that are composed kind of black eyed peas and rice dishes that have different permutations. So. To me, it speaks to the idea that people leave one place and come to another and try to recreate home as best as they can. And as you say that, I think about belief systems wrapped up in Black Eyed Peas, too. Beliefs um, and promises for the future, for luck, for wealth, for whatever it may be. How do those belief systems show up in Black Eyed Peas? Yeah. So when you look at West African societies, we know that black eyed peas are served for auspicious occasions. One that I love is the belief that you should serve black eyed peas uh, with the birth of twins, because I have a twin sister. But it shows up at funerals, weddings, you know, all of these special occasions, you know, indicate that black eyed peas are a, a special food. And I love the fact that in West African spiritual practices, the deities often have human-like qualities, so they have their favorite foods. And then another belief is that the black eyes warded off the evil eye. And so we see instances of black eyed peas being worn as, an, as a good luck charm, right, as an amulet to ward off the evil eye, which was a big concern to a lot of people for much of history. I mean, I think people still worry about that. 
It's interesting to me. So many of us know the story of Black Eyed Peas as a talisman of good luck, but there's a whole ecosystem of belief that surrounds Black Eyed Peas, and that's in part what this story is about. No, Black Eyed Peas show this kind of fusion, right? This bringing together of West Africa, uh, Europe, and the Americas in this place called the American South. And so not only do we get the beliefs and the superstitions that surround the food, but, you know, the agricultural aspects of it, that there were certain times to grow black eyed peas and how it would help with the growing of other crops. And so we see that agricultural knowledge being transplanted in the Americas as well. And I think that's why uh, black eyed peas have such special meaning in the culture. Survival food, something that will bring good luck uh, and something that is a taste of home. When culinary historian Michael Twitty traveled to West Africa in 2017, he wasn't a tourist. He was a time traveler. He was encountering his ancestral home for the first time. I went to Senegal, and then that fall I went to Nigeria. And then I went to Ghana and Cameroon and Benin and Togo and Sierra Leone and Gambia. But the one thing I can tell you in some about those trips is that the food, the black-eyed peas, the melons, the hot peppers, the okra, the leafy greens, the um, smoked meat and fish, all the usual suspects are there. The more I go to West Africa, the more I see the South. Michael's research, part genealogical, part culinary, became a book called The Cooking Gene. It chronicles how he traced his family's history through the foods of the African diaspora. Michael found that he descended from ancestors who had been forcibly taken from West and Central Africa and sold into enslavement in the American South. Early on, Michael called this research the Southern Discomfort Tour. This is a brutal history. It's about slavery, disease, violence, mortality. But for Michael, it's also about reimagining a means of survival. He derives strength from an identity rooted in ancient ingredients. It's always been a matter of the way in which I am a part of the flow of history. I am Red Eye Gravy and Hoppin' John. I am Fried Apples and Sugar Cane on rare Birmingham snow. I am Fried Chicken and I'm also Red Rice. That's me. Michael mentioned Hoppin' John, an iconic dish of black-eyed peas and rice, usually seasoned with smoked pork. Both black-eyed peas and rice loom large as staple foods of the African diaspora in the American South. But the black-eyed pea has become a potent symbol of food sovereignty. For starters, this pea, that is actually a bean, is a practical crop. It's high yield and fairly easy to grow. It's also nitrogen fixing and therefore good for soil. Food scholar Adrian Miller researched the origin of the black-eyed pea for his book, Soul Food. Black-eyed peas are native uh, to West Africa. And actually, the broader name is cow peas, which include various varieties. When paired with rice, the dish becomes a complete protein. Of course, this level of sustenance was crucial for enslaved people. Black-eyed peas traveled in the holds of slave ships from West Africa. They became a common food source wherever the transatlantic slave trade reached. Brazil, Central America, the Caribbean, and the American South. In the South, black-eyed peas have been ubiquitous ever since. Hoppin' John is one of the most popular dishes that feature these cow peas. 
but it shows up in plenty of other recipes. In soups and stews, in succotash, in fritters, and even hummus. Adrian told me the auspicious name black-eyed pea may actually have its roots in Western European folklore. And so in, in several kind of Western Europe countries, especially like in Great Britain, there's this idea that the first person who should knock on your door on New Year's Day should be a dark-haired person with dark eyes. And that was supposed to be good luck. Southerners of virtually all backgrounds have adopted the tradition of eating black-eyed peas, usually in the form of hoppin'john, alongside greens and cornbread on New Year's Day. According to Adrian, this tradition combines mythology from West Africa and Europe in the American South. Black-eyed peas are part of that cowpea family, and cowpeas are certainly eaten on auspicious days in West Africa. So you've got that kind of auspicious quality, you've got the first footer tradition all coming together in uh, the American South, in what was British uh, North America and then the colonial period and eventually the United States. And so it really seems to have the strongest expression in South Carolina. And we know that South Carolina is uh, home of the Gullah people and also um, in kind of parts of Georgia, the Geechee people. And this is a part of the United States that has a strong kind of cultural African survival. My feeling is that enslaved West African cooks and later enslaved African-American cooks took the first footer tradition from Western Europe and turned it into something edible and um, added their auspicious use of, of kind of cow peas, especially black eyed peas, and came up with this dish, which then became the established tradition for New Year's Day. Ira Wallace collects and propagates heirloom varieties of legumes and vegetables, like black eyed peas and collards. She's a worker owner and seed saver at Acorn Community Farm in Mineral, Virginia. Over the years, Ira learned that black-eyed peas are also a point of intersection between the African and Jewish diasporas. I have a friend who is a Sephardic Jew from uh, Savannah, and her relatives' ancestors came in the 1700s, and they eat black-eyed peas, and she said that what they tell in her Jewish family is that this was something that they adopted during the time of slavery as a little bit of an act of solidarity. That might be a tall tale too, says she. Maybe so. It's true that Sephardic Jews have been eating black-eyed peas for centuries. The Encyclopedia of Jewish Food describes Sephardic communities that transplanted their Rosh Hashanah food tradition to colonial America, serving black-eyed peas on the Jewish New Year as a symbol of prosperity. As an African-American culinary historian who's also Jewish, Michael Twitty's work also explores these two overlapping diasporas. After the colonial period, Hoppin' John reached far beyond the Carolinas and Georgia. The earliest recipes Adrian Miller found for the dish incorporated Sea Island red peas from the Carolinas. But as the years passed, black-eyed peas became the norm, he thinks, because they were easier to ship. So they could stand the long train rides to other parts of the country, and they were usually in their dried form instead of the fresh form. And so uh, I think it was just market-ready, and that's why it's more prevalent than the Sea Island red peas that I saw in the earliest kind of mentions of Hop and John. Dr. Brian Foster is a professor at the University of Mississippi. A native Mississippian, he too grew up eating black-eyed peas on New Year's Day. 
But we for sure had black eyed peas and greens and cornbread as a tradition. In general, they're all about like luck and good fortune. Peas are are like coins. The greens are like dollars. Cornbread is like gold. Brian laughed when I brought up how ingrained these food superstitions have become. He remembered a recent New Year's when he had skipped his serving of black-eyed peas, and a perfect stranger called him out, in the most tender way. I think I had gone to like Chipotle or something. I didn't spend the New Year's with with family, and there was a black woman working working the register, and and I come through and I get whatever I get, and and she asked me. She said, she said something like, "You buying this? Have you had your black-eyed peas and greens today?" And she she actually invited me to come by and get and get a portion and get a plate, right? Because that's how fundamental and important that superstition, that tradition, that belief was, and how I think almost ubiquitous it is. When we come back from a short break, Michael Twitty and B. Brian Foster bring the conversation back around to time travel? Yes, time travel. Hi, it's Melissa. And if you're looking for another great podcast from the South, then you have to check out No Small Endeavor, produced by our friends at Great Feeling Studios and PRX. Each episode, award-winning professor and Nashville native Lee C. Camp merges the worlds of philosophy, theology, the arts, and more to ask the question, how can we live a good life while nourishing the soul? Plus, it's the only show I know that features everyone from legendary actor and filmmaker Rob Reiner to Southern activist and author Anthony Ray Hinton. So go ahead, follow No Small Endeavor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and tell them Gravy Said Hey! Simmons Catfish is a family-owned business that calls the Mississippi Delta home. The company is committed to quality catfish and, most importantly, to its employees. My name is Maria Esparza and I've been here 20 years at Simmons. I was born in Mexico, but I was raised in West Laco, Texas. When I was 19, they brought us over here to Simmons on a working contract, and I haven't went nowhere since then. Maria works as a strip table supervisor, cutting fish at the Simmons Processing Plant in Yazoo City, the same Delta town that gave us author Willie Morris. The Simmons Company recently honored her 20 years of service. Simmons marked her anniversary with a gift of a living room set, a dining room set, and more. She recalls the celebration fondly. Our people from the plant, they gave me some presents. I mean, it just felt good. They all got up, applause. It's just feeling good that you do for them and they do for you and they love you. I mean, like I said, this is family right here. We didn't go nowhere. You ain't gonna find another job like this. The next time you crave catfish, baked, fried, or in a stew, look for Simmons Farm-Raised Catfish, a driver of the Delta economy, an employer with integrity, the home of Willie Morris and Maria Esparza. A list of vendors is online at SimmonsCatfish.com. For their commitment to quality catfish, their belief in their employees, and their support of this podcast, we thank them.
Black-eyed peas are just one example of a food of the African diaspora that has become deeply rooted to the point of re-memory. That's a term Toni Morrison coined in her novel Beloved. Rememory is the process by which African Americans reckon with collective traumas. Michael Twitty took rememory all the way back to his ancestral home across West and Central Africa. It's through this research that he came to a poetic conclusion that terroir, the taste of place, is in our genes. And for him, it's a sense memory that survives generations of trauma and displacement. The soil, the land, everything you are. The things you can't explain, the things that are a little bit scary and unfamiliar, but too familiar. It's all in your blood and your bone. We are the sum total of every piece of soil and stardust our ancestors ever knew. And it's not just new agey kind of like spiritual talk. It's real talk. We're affected by the landscape generation to generation. We are the red clay. We are the sandy soil. And when you take people away from those, those origin spaces, you might just do them serious damage. Food diasporas might reveal the beauty of the ancestral past, but Michael is quick to point out the flip side, that this diaspora is also mired in trauma, and so are its foodways. It's all about choices and assumptions of dietary inadequacy, but no one talks about the fact that people weren't dying like this or sick like this when we had our own farms. But all of that, all those narratives of health, of land, of nature, of sustainability, of ecosystem and environmentalism and self-care and Black joy are all connected. Food activists of color have mined the diasporic past to envision a sustainable future. Ira Wallace has been doing this work for decades. Along with her work at Acorn Community Farm, she also works with the Southern Exposure Seed Exchange, a cooperative that distributes 800 heirloom seed varieties. Ira's community draws upon long-cultivated values, like consensus-based decision-making and income sharing. But Ira has her eye on the future, one in which farmers of color reclaim land sovereignty. There had been a steady decrease in the amount of land owned by Black people and the number of black farmers. And uh, people going back to uh, heirs' property that is owned in their family and common by a bunch of people and actually farming it. And young people who are encouraged by the new farm movement that says you can make a living on five acres. These kind of movements are something that those who are in the cities and want to help farming is finding organizations that support black people, poor people of any color, in being able to have small piece of land and get the training they know to need to be successful farmers is a really great way to help us have a, a more just and equitable food future. Since Michael Twitty and I first spoke about his trip to West Africa, I've learned that folklore is one way to learn about diasporic foodways. For Brian Foster, Afrofuturism is another. Brian's a sociologist, but like other scholars, Zandria F. Robinson and Lois Avioe, to name a couple, he's used Afrofuturism as a framework to travel over space and time. He's also done a lot of thinking about the role of food in his family's past and future. In 2020, he wrote an essay for the Southern Foodways Alliance called How We Got Here. 
I asked Brian to define Afrofuturism. So Afrofuturism in general is, is it's like this genre, this method, this idea, essentially about imagining Black folks across the diaspora. Um, so whether from the continent, Africa, African nations, or uh, as was the case for me in, in the U.S. and in the American South, imagining Black folks in the future. Afrofuturism as a term starts in the early 90s. We get this essay, Black to the Future, uh, by cultural critic Mark Derry, who is thinking and offering commentary on the state of science fiction and is wondering, where are the Black folks? Where are the Black writers of science fiction? Which he says he finds curious uh, because the lives, the experiences, the histories of Black folks, uh, again, with the focus on the U.S., has been one that mirrors many of the themes that we get in science fiction, whether it's alienation or, or otherwise. Within this framework, time moves backwards and forward, and traditional foods like black-eyed peas can inform the future. We actually can look to the past. We actually can look to and listen to a place like Mississippi and get some of the same principles that define this idea of Afrofuturism. The ability to invoke wisdom from the past is particularly important in this historically challenging era. The coronavirus pandemic has magnified widespread inequities that existed long before it started, and food access is no exception. I mean, we, we need local food now more than ever because people are out of work, because people are, don't have the same resources, because people um, are scared to leave the next vicinity of their homes. We have to go through all these these things, these traditions. I mean, we're doing pop-ups now, right? Pop-ups are the same thing as when we used to have a situation in the back of somebody's, you know, house, either passing out plates to the back that we sold or, you know, having a party and charging a little bit of money. And that's a restaurant, you know? We have these solutions in us because of we had to make do with what we had. That's all there really is to it. And I think that people used to need to mine those ancestral stories more and more and more and more so that we can say to the generations to come, you know, we, we already, we, we have this in our bones and our blood and our minds and our stories. We just need to, you know, revitalize it. Living in a time of sacrifice is all the more glaring on holidays traditionally associated with food and abundance, whether it's Hoppin' John on New Year's Day or Thanksgiving dinner. When I spoke with Brian, we had just come off our first pandemic Thanksgiving. So many of these moments, especially for, for Black folks, for Black Southerners, so many of these moments, these holidays, right? The food is not the end. It's a means to an end. It's a means to relationship building and community and just sharing space with the people that you care about. It has been interesting to see, see the differences, to see how people create anew amidst chaos, amidst uh, a set of circumstances that nobody could foresee. For Ira Wallace, there's no place more powerful than the garden when it comes to culinary self-determination. Maintaining your food culture is a way to hold yourself even when you really have very little control. And now I think sometimes that seed saving is, you know, a fundamental act of resistance. You know, a step that any person even with, you know, gardens in a pot can take to have a little more self-sufficiency to hold 
more of the genetic resources of the planet for the common good. If Afrofuturism can be a lens for the foodways of the African diaspora, Brian Foster boiled it down to one question he paraphrased from the essay Black to the Future. Can a people who have had a really hard time in the present imagine possible futures? If food sovereignty can stand for possibility, look no further than the Black Eyed Pea. Sarah Holtz produced this episode. We thank Wendell Patrick for Gravy's theme music and Jazar for our donor music. Our fact-checkers extraordinaire are our Natalie Dupree graduate fellows, Bethany Fitz and Catherine Jesse. Managing editor for Gravy and all other SFA media is Sarah Camp Milam. Mary Beth Lassiter serves as our publisher. Visit us at southernfoodways.org to learn more about who we are and what we do. While you're there, consider becoming a member or making a donation. Your dollars fund our work and help us make more gravy. I'm Melissa Hall. And I'm John T. Edge. Thanks for letting us pour some gravy in your ear.